0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. We are back from Rome, where we sadly did not meet the Pope, but certainly saw a lot of old stuff that had managed to remain standing for a very long time. Michael, how have you been?
1: I've been very well. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed going around Rome. It seems a ridiculous thing to say, but somebody who lived in the city for six years and has been there a number of times, I'd forgotten what a lot of stuff there is to look at. They're really. It's really quite cool, and it's kind of nice as well to be in a city which is in in large parts quite beautiful. You forget what it's like to be surrounded by things, objects, structures made by other human beings that are beautiful and are intended and in trying to be beautiful.
0: They're rather lovely. And when they get around to doing some of it up, it'll look even better. <laughs> yeah. It's not a half collapsed buildings that you know? Bit of glass, steel, could look pretty good. Yeah, I think I think they may leave those there, Gary. Well, I mean, Italy isn't you know, a terribly rich country anymore, Michael. I'm, I'm sure it'd be quite expensive. So I understand their reticence.
1: I, I suspect that if they really wanted to, they might get some donors in.
0: So given that it is Christmas, and given that we missed last week, we've got a special treat for you all. A conversation about why war is a good thing, and peace is heavily overrated. Also, hugs, Michael. Hugs are also terribly overrated. I, for one, am sick of Peace and Love's unblemished record of positive PR. It's gone on too long, and they deserve to be brought down into the mud where everyone else lives.
1: What's that quote, which is, I'm sure, always misquoted and misdermitted? The Italians had 500 years of internecine warfare, conquest, rapine, and pillage. They gave us Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, and the Renaissance. The Swiss had 500 years of unbroken peace and prosperity. And what do they give us? The cuckoo clock. Which, of course, the only problem with that is, of course, one of the reasons why the Swiss really started betting hard on peace and prosperity was because during the Thirty Years' War, the Swiss had an absolutely horrible time of it. And got slaughtered in their thousands.
0: I think that's from the Third Man, actually. But yes, it is. It is regularly quoted. It also, to be fair to the Swiss, really, really plays down the impact of Swiss mercenaries.
1: Yeah, definitely. And here's a, here's a here's a quiz question that will probably come at some somebody's table quiz this year. Um, the Swiss are by law, Swiss men are by law not allowed to enroll in any foreign army across the world, except for one. This was introduced in order specifically to stop the Swiss getting involved in mercenaries. The great mercenaries before you had Scottish mercenaries, Irish mercenaries later on, but before that, you had Genevese Bowmen, but the business, Swiss, Halberds and others. But there was one group or one army that Swiss men are allowed to join. Do you know what it is, Gary? I do, actually. Go on, tell the people.
0: Why don't we leave that for the end, Michael, as a cliffhanger? Teaser,
1: teaser to keep it with us.
0: Okay. We're going to talk about an editorial in the Irish Independent, Michael. Yes. Earth is too small and life too short for anything but the pursuit of peace. Okay. I don't have a lot of patience for, shall we say, Hallmark-style peace and love talk at the best of times. But I'm going to give you the last paragraph of this article, Michael. Here is some sage advice on the subject from US writer and activist Marge Percy. The best gift you can give is a hug. One size fits all, and no one ever minds if you return it. Mm -hmm. It also contains the line, It is seldom our differences that divide us, but our refusal to accept them.
1: It is seldom our differences that divide us, but our refusal to accept them. Wow. So it's not what is about us. It is not what about us that is different that makes us different. It's something that isn't... Just blew my mind, Gary. Just blew me away.
0: It also contains a... More seriously, it contains a quote from Cicero, which is, I prefer the most unfair peace to the most righteous war. Now, I have not read, Michael, shamefully, most of Cicero's letters to his friends. So I don't know what the context of that was, but I would also say that that's a terrible stance to take.
1: I did read letters, Cicero's letters, a very long time ago when I was a young and callow youth, and can remember almost nothing of them. Also, it's it's hardly the point anyway. It's it, the, the the point of the war is, if the that we're we're presumably the the point that they're addressing now is not a question about whether they. A, ju- a good war or, a, or a, a, a good peace or a bad peace or a good war or a bad war. There are maybe other things to take into consideration here. But, okay, what is the point of the article? Is it basically, is it simply saying the Israelis should stop? Is it, is it as simple as that and they just had to get in 1,500 words before they could get there?
0: Oh, no, no, this isn't. This isn't. It, Gaza is mentioned, but this is not about Israel, Michael. This is a global Call for hooks.
1: Oh, sorry, sorry. This is a Christmas editorial.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It even references Bethlehem.
1: Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we sleep tonight.
0: Oh, it's got a good line. I thought you might particularly like, Michael, given your interest in in theology. That so many beliefs and religions have been weaponized to create lines of separation instead of the bonds of common humanity for which they were spun should not take from their essential values. Yeah. So is, is that your read of, of uh, theology and the formation of religion, Michael? Is the modern church with its, its sure aren't we all the same, let us all join hands? Is that is that where we go?
1: There are religions, there are denominations and churches that certainly would Follow the line, we're all the same, that everything we have is just uh, as a consequence of the cultural conditioning that we have received. We were born into this particular culture, and therefore we hold these beliefs. There are other religions out there, Gary, which make what are known as truth claims. In other words, they say, this is true. This is what happened. This is what is happening, and this is what's going to happen. And because of that, we think that you should behave in a certain kind of way. And if you don't, that there are certain kinds of things we, get, we can get to do to you if you don't do the things we think you should be doing. Because God told us. Um, so I think it depends very much on what kind of religion you talk about. Religions that take truth claims... because I, I, I suppose the thing is, a lot of liberals don't take religion terribly seriously. And when they want to be nice about religion, they kind of say, well, all religion is basically the same. It's all in a sense, a manifestation of the higher origins of human beings for a form of spirituality, for a sense of purpose in the universe, a sense of awe, a sense of beauty and aesthetic. And therefore, they're all the same. It may be the case, Gary, however, that while there is an element of truth to that, that not all manifestations of this religious impulse are, in fact, the same. And that if you were going to go to read the sacred texts of the various different religions, whether it's the Baha'i or the Sikh or the the Taoist or the Christian or the Muslim or the Jew or whoever you want, that you might come away feeling that they actually had different, fundamentally different understandings about the way people should organize themselves in the world.
0: So you might say that Christ for on one hand and Quetzalcoatl on the other, don't have a lot in common. Well, Christ, to my knowledge, had very little interest in chocolate. That is true. Or blood sacrifice.
1: Uh, when No, you couldn't actually say that, because of course, Christ is the ultimate and the final and definitive holocaust. He is the last sacrifice. He, sac- he is the figure who takes on to himself all of the sins of the world and sacrifices himself for the world. Therefore, uh, Meaning that no more sacrifices shall be needed. But on the other hand, was
0: further sacrifices will be needed.
1: For, oh yeah, further sacrifices would very much, very definitely, will be needed. Anyway, so the the, the independence is, is causing for peace and goodwill to all man. I I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't want to be that guy, Gary. But really, what is so wrong? Once a year, we're going and saying, you know what? You know all the killing and the suffering and the stuff. Maybe. Maybe lads not do so much of it. What's the harm, really? Seriously? What's the harm in saying war is hell?
0: I hate this sort of over sentimentalised crap where we're going to say this thing because it's the right thing to say and we're just going to fill it start to finish with clichés and string it together with random quotes. But it's nothing. It is useless. And beyond that, I think there is an important point that there are absolutely things that are worth fighting for, whether that is individually or in an organized fashion as in a war. And this sort of, there's an underlying presentation of peace, Michael, that I fundamentally disagree with. The idea that peace is simple and easy to get to and just involves people recognising that we are all humans separated only by our unwillingness to accept our similarities.
1: Well, okay, okay. now that, that point I will take, because I think the point you're making is analogous to the point that Thomas Sowell makes about poverty. He says that in a awful lot of the discourse in economics, I swear, economics of a certain kind, but certainly in, in, in popular discourse, People talk about wealth and poverty as as if we these were choices we make. Well, the reality is that poverty is the natural state of human beings and that we have to do certain kinds of things to stop being poor. And we pretty well know what those things are because we know from... Now, we say stop being poor stop most be, people being poor. There have been places in the world where there have been very, very rich, but only very, very few people i mean for a very long time people in china, there were many people in china or in india that were very very rich but very many people were also very very poor but the idea of a, of a, of some kind of a distributed level of wealth is basically something which has happened with the rise of market uh, economics uh, functioning coming out of europe so that sense that yes i think i take your point i mean if you talk to Anthropologists who are, who are going to be honest with you, or social psychologists, they would tell you the first thing that's true about the human being is that we are groupish. This is a phrase that Jonathan Hyde uses, Hyde uses a lot. He says, We are groupish, we are tribal, we are shaved apes. And I think a salutary thing to do every so often is to go on YouTube and look up. You know those videos of chimpanzees hunting monkeys?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, good fun.
1: Yeah. Remember, they are our closest cousins in the animal world. They are the animals are closest to us. And Gary, they're having a good time of it. But they're having a horrifically savage time of it also. So the idea that peace, it seems to me far more likely that peace is something which is very difficult and hard and, and also is usually the consequence of a certain kind of political organisation. Because also, if nothing else, and it, it, it is also about the rule of law. And increasingly when we talk about relationships between other states, we're talking about international law, which as Gary likes to point out, is very often just a notion rather than
0: a reality. So on to the next problem with peace. Yeah. The idea that peace is the most important thing. If you're in a situation, Michael, where let's say you have peace, but you don't have freedom. Yeah. Is it justified to fight against that? Because if peace is the most important thing, then no. Or if you're in a system where there is peace, but let's say... Uh, there is hoarding of wealth amongst you know, a tyrant or an elite, and your family is starving. Well, then, if peace is the most important thing, your duty is to die quietly. Are we
1: really having this conversation? Yes. Okay. Fine. Well, first of all, I, okay, I'll go back to Aquinas, and I, was, I'll, I'll, I will agree with Aquinas. I'm sure he's delighted. Aquinas would say. First of all, uh, like all the medievals, well, most of the medievals anyway, he would say that there, there exists such a thing, a right, what, what, what was called a right of tyrannicide. That the, if you are ruled over by an unjust tyrant who imposes unjust laws and misery on the people, then the people have the right to rise up against the tyrant and to depose him using violence. The people have a right not to unbey, to obey unjust laws. However, Aquinas does come along with uh, this qualification. He says, laws are so necessary to the well-being and order and peace of a society, of a community, that we have to be very careful about how flagrant, how, how, how would I put this? how eagerly we go after law breaking just because a law is in itself unjust doesn't mean that necessarily we are justified in breaking it if the law is inconsequential if the outcomes of the law are not so terrible if they don't really damage our life so much if it's it's just it's an annoyance it's a pettifogging thing the importance of keeping the law is higher than the, morality, the 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 moral the morality shall we say of breaking the law. So we we have to put we have to have a very high value on law and therefore we have to be careful about when we choose not to. Now the second thing is uh, not to be soundly too postmodern about it, Gary, we need to look about what we mean by the word peace. Because if you have a society where you have food is being hoarded by a small elite and many many people are in fact as a consequence of that dying of hunger then i can think you have a very reasonable argument to say that that is not a society which is at peace anyway that that you're killing people you're not killing them with guns or with bullets or with pikes, but you are systematically engaged in violence
0: against them it might shock you to learn this michael but the editorial team of the irish independent have put considerably less thought into what they mean by peace than Aquinas.
1: I am shocked. I am shocked by that. Which
0: is important to me as I'm not arguing against Aquinas. I'm arguing against the editorial board of The Independent. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. And just as a final point, here's another line. Well, as I said, I think I mentioned the quote from Cicero, I prefer the most unfair peace, to the most righteous war. But then it also says, experience reminds us, as has been said before, the earth is too small a star, and we are here too brief a spell for anything to matter more than the search of peace. I just disagree with that philosophically, and frankly, I think it would give Nietzsche a fucking field day.
1: Also, considering Cicero engaged in wars against uh, Caesar and against uh, Octavian and Antony afterwards, um, and caused incredible havoc up and down Italy and across the Mediterranean in order to defend a simple principle, the principle of the Republic against the, the monarchy, what he believed was the Alchemy monarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that Cicero really has been consistent on that, but then again, your know, consistency is the hobgoblin of mediocre minds
0: well Michael he said he would prefer it he didn't say he wasn't willing to do it okay
1: anyway speaking as somebody who I suspect is a physical and moral coward I'm up for peace
0: do, do you know what this is Michael this is the last man the last man yeah it's a Nietzschean concept in Thus Spoke Zarathustra
1: yes I'm aware yeah How is it the last man, I suppose, is my question.
0: I mean, look at these pallid, simple creatures without any passion or commitment. Absolutely no will to power. They're just what we want is peace. What they want is comfort and ease, Michael. Just meaningfulness.
1: You see, Gary, there you have, in fact, touched on a a deep truth. Is this? this, (sighs) We talk here at times a lot about things like freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of freedom to hold private property, and freedom to do this and freedom to do that. And what have we what have we observed in the wider world? The reality is that the large people, group of people out there don't actually really care about that thing, those things. They don't care about the great high freedoms. They don't care about the great rights. They care about having an ordered society, a warm place to sleep, a dry place to sleep, peace in the streets. And after that, you know, not that terribly bothered. Look to our friends in El Salvador.
0: Yeah. I just think that life should be, it should be about passion and will and a lack of contentment with doing things pearly or just doing things because they keep you comfortable. And all of this peace talk, Michael, that's all that is.
1: Well, I, I noted you, the, your use of the word should there, Gary.
0: Not the word is. I would hate to speak for others.
1: Well, indeed. And I'm sure you know the, you have largely. A, we live in, according to the Fraser and Cato Institutes, the fourth freest country in the world. So I think you have a large degree of freedom in order to pursue that life that you describe as being the life worth living.
0: Uh, the age of warlords is done, Michael, at least for the moment.
1: Oh, no, late age of warlords is not done, Gary. You just you hang around long enough
0: the way to the world loads it's, its way back. Can I be honest with you, Michael, given that it's Christmas? Go on. I picked this entire topic and this entire conversation so at the end of it I could make a single joke about the last man. And as it came to make it, I realized I had entirely forgotten the joke and I didn't write it down anymore. Anyway. <laughs> I hate that! So I had a, a moment of just frantic. What the fuck did Nietzsche say in Thus Spoke Zarathustra? What was I going to make a joke about?
1: (coughs) Was it a joke about a little man with a a massive ear going around?
0: So that was a long conversation with no payoff. You know, there's something
1: that we don't do, Gary, that our friends and colleagues over there in the Sarah Ryan and John McGregor show do. Uh, They give shout-outs and they talk about the the listeners' responses and their criticisms and their plaudits and what nice things they say about them and sometimes what not nice things they say about them. And we never do that. And I'm happy enough because I'm happier really imagining that basically nobody ever actually listens to this because that makes me feel safer and happier. Anyway, I want to give you a shout-out because uh, we have had, had a number of comments, nice comments about from uh, Emer, I want to say hello to Emer and wish her a fröhliche Weihnachten.
0: When you said the, the thing that we don't do, that the other podcast does, I thought for a second that you were going to say, accept or take on board any of the feedback that says the show is incredibly pompous or has delved so far into in-jokes and references that no one could reasonably be expected to understand that it is borderline incomprehensible at its worst.
1: Oh, Jesus, Guy, I think the pompous, that pompous ship, sh- ship has sailed long. Long ago.
0: Even I occasionally consider the show Pompous. And to give you, to situate that properly, I am a man who has taken LSD and hiked up a mountain so that I could get to the top of it as the sun came up and listened to jazz. Like, I know Pompous.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> I hope And
0: would... even I recognize the accuracy of that critique. I'm just not going to do anything about it. Because here's an important thing where we were talking about, you know, not just doing things because we're comfortable. The show is deliberately not designed to have mass appeal. If it actually had mass appeal, that would be far more problematic to us because then you you start running into people who've heard things you said and you perhaps don't want that. I am happy with the audience we have managed to cultivate. All of you are wonderful and I love you all in a very distant fashion. Let's not go too crazy even at Christmas.
1: Yeah, this is fantastic. I can't remember where it's from. It's um, I think Black Pentecostals Preacher, who has uh, had the habit, it was which was quoted in a movie sometime, of when he finished his services, he would look onto the congregation and say, "I love each and every one of you, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it." Now, one thing I did want to very briefly mention, because actually, weirdly, I had a number of people coming up to me in different places over the last couple of weeks and the subject of the far right and what is the far right and all that and fascism and blah, blah, blah had come up and somebody mentioned to me that I had mentioned before. I just wanted to direct them towards, now Gary, there are a million books on the subject. However, there is an Italian historian uh, called Renzo de Felice, who has, who was been regarded, well, by some people as kind of the doyen of uh it, the history of uh of fascism he he's written a four volume i think he finished well he, i don't know he, somebody maybe finished for him it's a 6000 page volume Gary. 6000 pages biography of mussolini so it's quite a quite a bit anyway the reason i'm I'm giving I I'm giving him is because uh, 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 well I I read him and I I liked it, but also because there there's a list going around and I don't know what it is and I shall probably know what it is, because it's quoted at me as this this is a serious thing and by an American or an English historian. So this sociologist maybe, I think it's destroyed. And it's basically listed. If you can tick the, the boxes on this list, then this, this is fascism. And it just didn't really, before you were talking about uh, Umberto Eco's Ur-Fascism Now I think that actually has has more validity than this but this to me just sounded like the kind of list that you could basically squeeze any system which was kind of right or centre into it and call it Fascist But Renzo de Felice I think is a good guy. Now unfortunately there's not an awful lot of his stuff which is available in English There are however two books which you can get in English. One is The Jews in Fascist Italy A History which is published by Enigma Books in 2001 and there is also, he did an interview with Michael Ledeen in 1975, which is Intervista sul Fascismo, which is connected to another, I think, a, a short book, Il Fascismo, the, the, the Fascism and the Interpretations of, contem- of Contemporary Historians in 1970. Now, I think there is actually an English version of that available, which kind of goes through his way of looking at fascism. Uh, The two things I'd say you could say about Ren's about to finish uh, briefly because we're not going to talk about him a lot is, first of all, he doesn't regard uh, fascism as a reactionary force, as in a reaction to the rise of the left, but rather something which springs from the Enlightenment as a valid ideological expression of the of the needs of the desires of the bourgeoisie in much the same way as marxism so it has it has in, in a sense this a similar kind of ideological validity as marxism and that he felt there was no connection or valid comparisons between italian fascism and german national socialism he thought there were two completely different political ideologies um he then he he makes a distinction between fascism as ideology and fascism as regime and fascism as regime is basically like the oh the the structure that Mussolini creates the around himself to create the dictatorship that Mussolini desires and the power that he wants to abrogate onto himself but that's a, that's separate to to idiot ideolo- to fascism as ideology and uh, I mean the, the philosopher of fascism is uh, Gentile, and Gentile is a real philosopher. He's a serious Hegelian. And I suppose you could say like Marxism, I mean, uh, fascism comes from, from this Hegelian school. Anyway, anybody who's interested in actually understanding what fascism is? And this is let, let us be clear, Gary, this is not an endorsement of fascism. I am much more a Benedetto Croce kind of a guy than I am a, a, a Gentile kind of a guy. I'm much more, you know, sort of burkey and Tory weak type. Not a fan of fascism at all. But it it's just so fucking tiresome to hear people just use it like a word that means nothing. That you just can fill it up with your own meaning and then throw it like a, a piss-filled balloon at the head of somebody you don't like. It annoys me. Anyway, there you go. I just wanted to say that to anybody out there who was interested in it. That book, you can have a look. And it, and it gives you a sense of of the the, 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 the ideology. Uh, the Jews and Fascists' History History. It's also just a really interesting book. Because it's a really interesting subject. The, um, the story of the Jewish experience during fascism.
0: Anyway, Gary, moving on. Yes, there was one little thing. I It was an interview that uh, I, I want to mention. It was an interview that Ivana Batchik did with the Journal. Yes. And yes, we've got to note that the Batchik bounce seems to have been leading Labour into an open grave at current polling. But she's still technically leader of a party, at least for another year and a bit. So we've got to pay attention to her. But she says something quite interesting about the Constitution. Itself, They were talking about the upcoming referendum that the government are having, the referendum to remove women from the Constitution on International Women's Day, as one of them is now being referred to. And she said that she was very concerned that Labour might not be able to support a yes in it. There's a cynical person, Michael, might say that the noise that's coming from the left-wing parties on this about how they might not come behind it is less because they're unhappy with the wording And more because they fear it won't pass. Yeah. And so they would prefer if it didn't pass and they could say, well, of course it didn't pass because we didn't support it and it wasn't progressive enough. As opposed to, well, it didn't pass because people don't want this. Yes. But that would be cynical, Michael. Very. But she said twice in the interview, uh, once in relation to a particular article, Article 41.2, and once just in relation to the Constitution in general. But she twice called the Irish Constitution an embarrassment. Now, the, uh, the leader of an Irish political party referring to the constitution governing the structure of the country as an embarrassment is quite a significant thing. It's not being treated as a significant thing because Irish people have a very strange approach to politics and Irish politicians have a very strange approach to politics. But it's not the sort of thing I think, Michael, you would see the head of a European political party come out and say, because if they said it, they would know damn well that they were going to have to be able to back that up. And that if they were unable to back that up, people may actually not vote for them on that basis because it's an important, some would say the most important, structural document of the state. So if it's an embarrassment, okay, the particular clause is an embarrassment, but how is the overall constitution an embarrassment? And she goes on to, when when she's saying that the Article 41 is an embarrassment, she said that it's an embarrassment that we still refer to women as having a life within the home and mothers as having duties within the home and there's no reference to fathers, which is at least an argument. Now, I would say even if one doesn't like the provision, I would probably stop short of saying it's an embarrassment because it doesn't actually compel anyone to do anything.
1: Yeah, But...
0: I don't know. What, but... What do you think on this, Michael? Am I being... Am I just getting into one of those moods I get into where I start saying things like that is actually quite important? Perhaps we shouldn't just say shit about it?
1: I think it's a really... on the face of an odd thing to say. I First of all, remember that Ivana is, by training, an academic lawyer. So this isn't the opinion of the roofer, the Thatcher, or the accountant. This is the opinion of somebody who has spent their life or a large part of their adult life doing the law. She therefore must have some fairly decent understanding of it. It is unimaginable, pretty well unimaginable, that an American, for example, an American politician with any kind of desire to stay in politics to come out and say that the American Constitution was an embarrassment. They regarded not much of the way a, a, a serious Christian might regard scripture. But leaving that aside, because maybe that's American exceptionalism and that sense that America is this weird thing founded on an idea and that, you know, the, the founding fathers were this incredible bunch of people. But thinking like the basic law in Germany or the Italian Constitution, Italy is a republic founded on labor. Famously, the 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 French, the Fifth Republic. I. It's hard to imagine a senior politician saying this about the constitution without having very. St- what what are, what are the, what are the problems being generated by the constitution? Now, I would preface this by saying, that, as I said to you before, it, I think that the fact is that since this constitution came in, there's a sense. The fact is that this is often referred to as Dev's constitution I think is a clue about what is happening here. Now the degree to which it ever actually was Dev's constitution is highly s- speculative. The reality is I think most of the constitution, I think most constitution and often it was, was was really based on the French constitution in 48 so it's, it's largely a pretty typical high liberal document there are elements of it that are slightly different. The things that somebody like Ivana would have regarded as horrid and awful and objectionable, would first, I would say that in the first place they weren't that horrid. and Even if they were, they're gone. So for example, um, the Constitution recognised the special place of the Catholic Church. Now, at the time, in 1937, there would have been a fair degree of pressure from certain elements within Ireland and without that, Ireland would have decided to have an established religion, and that that religion would have been the Holy Holy Catholic, Apostolic, Roman and, and Apostolic Church. But they chose not to. Um, but they, and they say, oh, but the Church has a special role, which it had absolutely, it, it seems to me, no juridical consequences. Really, it, it also recognised the existence of other. Uh, faith communities like Presbyterians, Methodists, Anglicans, and Jews, and um, I don't think that that's something you should be discounted so quickly. That in nineteen thirty seven, when the rest of Europe was, was sweeping, and not just the the parts that we think about of being the bad boys, now, but some of the good boys too, were passing fairly significant anti-Jewish legislations and had systemically anti semitic uh, systems of government and power and. Civil servants, universities, whatever—that the Irish Constitution recognised the existence of the Jewish, the Irish Jewish community—is something which was both admirable and important. After that, what? It it it's strong on property rights. It's strong on family uh, rights. Me. If it's an embarrassment, then she should be able to point to a whole series of places where it fails functionally as a foundational document to be able to be the basis for the kinds of the laws that we are that we want to pass today. I, I haven't heard that discourse. I haven't heard the great lacunae that exists because of the Constitution. Is the problem with the Constitution that it's too hard to change? That it requires a plebiscite of the people is that the problem that she would prefer it to be done in parliament which can be done some part, some constitutions can be can be changed not by a plebiscite but rather by maybe an extraordinary
0: majority within parliament you know one thing i would note here is when i saw the the comments by Ivana, it got me thinking about the the first the plebiscite on the draft constitution in in as you said 1937 michael and i started going through the The Department of Environment, strangely enough, has published uh, the details of every referendum published in the uh, 20th century, and the results are broken down by constituency. And because that sounded more interesting to me than it probably would to a sane person, I started going through it, and there's some really interesting results. Like the, the draft constitution, I've said before I don't believe in compulsory voting, because I think there's a lot of people who just don't want to vote. Uh, unless it's something of immediate interest to them, or people who will rightfully say, well, I don't know what's happening, so I'm not going to vote because I legitimately don't know which way I should vote, which I think is a laudable thing for someone who legitimately is ignorant about what's happening to do. Do you know what the turnout was um, for the draft constitution vote? God, I should know that.
1: I'm sure at some stage in my life, I did know that. I have no clue. 75%. All right. Okay. Decent.
0: Decent, but, you know, not 90%. But the one that I found most interesting, and I only do one of them, although there are... I'll say, I'll put a link to this in the thing so people can look at it if, if anyone else is interested in it. The referendum on the voting system in 1959. Now, this lost, but it only lost by about 33,000 votes. But here's what it was. It is proposed in the bill to abolish the system of proportional representation and to adopt instead a system of single-member constituency, each voter having a single, non-transferable vote. Yes. That came so close to passing. 453,000 against 486,000. Mm-hmm. And if it had, very different country nowadays.
1: Was that that held at the same time as the presidential election
0: i don't roughly know it was in june of 1959 oh I, sorry yes it was it was it was the same day as the presidential it was the 17th of june
1: that that was one of the curiosities of it was that devalera won the presidential election fairly handily in 59 but lost uh Fianna Fáil, that is lost that uh, but lost that referendum. So there was a significant feel of all vote. which said, no, no, we we like it the way we have it. And also there was a sense at the time that if we were to bring in single-party yeah, constituencies, that you would effectively be creating a permanent majority for feel of all
0: Yeah, you see, I, I went through the actual voting pattern per constituency and you see some really weird stuff, like uh, Claire voted in favour of it, as did Tony Gall. And Galway, so the weird spots around the country where it seems to have been quite popular, presumably where uh, there was the most support for one of the parties, and it reflects that. It's interesting. No, it
1: would. Yeah, that's, uh, it would be interesting. The, uh, I, 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 don't see why it's an embarrassment. But it, but this is. was she, was she asked why? Give me five reasons why it's embarrassing, Ivano.
0: Michael, it was a journal interview. Oh. Mea culpa. (laughs) It may be that she just, she didn't mean the constitution entirely at all. And she meant both of them to refer to these provisions. But I suppose I would there relate back to the fact that The Irish, as you mentioned, Michael, when the Irish Constitution was brought in, it was considered to be a very progressive document in many ways. I think the areas of it which have been the most limiting have either been removed or amended or were found ultimately to actually not be that limiting at all. And that they were more sort of narrative than anything else and really had very little influence in the courts. And at the
1: risk of, of repeating because I'm I'm fairly sure I've said this before, that when the constitution was introduced, the way a, a constitution would have been understood as a legal document would have been rather different than the way it became to be understood. So for example, we have our, what you could call our bill of rights section in the constitution. And from the contemporary documents, it seems to be the case that it was believed that what these would be would be headlines for, for the legislature to to aim towards. These would be like, uh, what do you call them, feros? What's a feros in English? Lighthouses. There would be lighthouses. There would be guiding lights towards which the legislature should go. This was the kind of state we should try to be. Because in the 30s we are still very much under the influence of english uh, english legal theory and english legal theory was absolutely dominated by the notion that parliament is sovereign that law is what is written law is positive as is, what is written on the page is what the law is but that parliament is sovereign constitute the obviously the united kingdom had no written constitution it's really only later on as you get new and new new generations of lawyers coming up from universities influenced admittedly largely by Catholic natural law theory in the late 40s and the early 50s that you start to see a change in the understanding of the way the constitution is is, op, is operated and how we find that in the, the people start to discover rights in the constitution that are not explicitly there, on unenumerated on rights, rights that are found in the penumbra of the constitution and that certain kinds of things become these strong rights, these very strong vindicated vindicated rights. Uh, but it's my understanding anyway, and if we have constitutional law on listening who thinks that I'm totally off-base, please re- leave a comment and we'll, maybe we'll get back to you, we'll talk to you about it. But that, that when it was written, it really was very much in that English liberal legal tradition that these... These guarantees were guarantees, but they would they would be basically... They would be f- fleshed out and described by legislation produced in Parliament rather than be sticks with which we could beat parliamentarians, which is how we see the Constitution now.
0: Michael, moving on from the Constitution, but staying within the wheelhouse of Labour. Oh, yes. Michael D. Higgins and his expenses.
1: Yeah... We have
0: we do you remember we talked about this before? We talked about Michael D Higgins and his promise if he was elected again to detail all of his expenses, which he then after he was elected released a book where I believe legitimately one of the items on the accounts was etc. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Anyway, he, he Senator Gerard and I always struggle with the man's name, and I should. Crockle, Cro Crochel, Crowell, Crockwell. We
0: go with Crockwell. Crockwell, sure. Strong name.
1: Senator Jerry Crockwell has it Maybe not name, into. Maybe the right name, strong name. And the Irish Mirror describes this as a scathing attack on the president, sarcastically, Gary. Sarcastically, you could learn from this man, referring to him as the great socialist defender of the marginalised. I'm quoting here. When Michael de Higgins ran for office as President of Ireland, he gave his word that he would seek only one term, recalled Crowell. As we all know, he adapted to the trappings of office and decided for a con- to contest a second term. Um, the independent senator called, and this is an interesting one, called on Senator Higgins, to, or Mr Higgins, on, on Luthoral, I should say, to publish details of contractors who have re- received funds from the offices 250000 Euro budget for professional consultancy and other services? Are these people selected through an open and transparent competition, he asked? Well, that's That's not an unreasonable question. Or is it? I don't know. Is it? Well,
0: I think a, a note that we should make here, because this is something I've run into myself, the office of the president is entirely exempt from freedom of information requests. Ah. I can't remember what the situation before was. I think it was in relation to either his expenses when he released them, and it was clear that they were so they were not sufficient for what he had promised it was basically a piss take so i'm not sure if i tried to look into it on that or if it was about some of the um, overnight and travel subsidies that were paid out where the numbers that were given were so high that it either had to be an extraordinary amount of people or be or payments at a, above the civil service rate which mm-hmm. would be the standard that would be done um, but yeah, totally, totally uh, exempt from the uh, Freedom of Information legislation.
1: One of the things that seems to annoy Jerry particularly is the spend on communications. Gary, the, the president spent eighty-five thousand euro on communications. And Jerry comments, given the fact that the president and his wife's every utterance is reported widely in print. Radio, and on TV. What on earth does he pay for?
0: I would, not having seen the accounts, but only having seen Crowell's uh, explanation of them, my immediate thought is that that's probably a member of staff. It's in the right kind of ballpark for someone in that position for the president.
1: That is what I would have thought too. But from the breakdown that was given afterwards, it seemed to imply that... The figure that was, the total figure for salaries was actually separate from that.
0: Yeah, because I remember he got into trouble at the last election because there was claims he was staying in a €3,000 a night hotel suite in uh, Switzerland.
1: Yes, on Lake Geneva.
0: Well, I mean, that sounds lovely. This is going to sound, admittedly, I would imagine to listeners a bit strange, but €3,000 a night for a suite in certain hotels is actually not bad at all. In in other areas, it's incredibly high, but it depends what you're looking for, basically. Is it unusual for a high-ranking state official? In Ireland, yeah, probably. In Europe, if you're dealing with, let's say, uh, uh, the French president? I would say no. I would say not even close to it.
1: I saw a documentary once about the about the kitchens in the Lisee Palace. Oh, Gary, I don't think the kitchens in in Aris match up to it at all. It was fantastic. There was there was a whole section on the the head chef, the chef de cuisine, work working with different people who were, who were trying to supply baguette to the, to, to the Elysee, And I, I, it briefly made me want to be French, Gary, that a country took their bread rolls quite so seriously. I think if you're French, you'd be proud. Because these are the important things in life.
0: I have generally found when dealing with the French, and not just the French, there's a number of other countries that have this, and it's very different than Ireland. There is an assumption and a belief that high level representatives of the state should appear in a certain fashion and should stay in certain locations and should present to other countries in a particular fashion, where that fashion can be ostentatious or expensive or whatever but it has a certain level to it that they like whereas in Ireland I think if we could get the president to go around in sackcloth and ashes there would be a significant amount of people who would say that was appropriate
1: yeah and to be honest with you I, of all of the various things that Michael D. Higgins has done to the presidency and during the presidency where he has spent his nights when when visiting Lake Geneva and what he has spent in his communications really is low down the list and also by the way I have well we will see I doubt that his popularity ratings would shift one percentage point on the basis of uh, this particular article becoming popular or going viral.
0: No, 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 not at all. One thing that I did find quite interesting is during the week when the Irish Independent noted that Peter Casey was considering running for office, there were a number of comments from people who would not be very strongly of the right, making the point that uh, Higgins' expansion of what the president is expected and allowed to comment on may come back and bite those people pretty quickly in the ass if Casey gets in.
1: I understand the well, shall we say the concern that people have. But actually ultimately that won't be Peter Casey's choice to make. Peter Casey might want to make that choice. It will depend largely on The energy or the interest of the government of the day. Michael D. Higgins has been allowed to behave as he has because the government of the day has allowed him so to do. We are told often, and maybe apocryphally, that when Mary Mary Robinson was elected president in 1990, for the first two years of her presidency, when Charles J. Hawley was Taoiseach, mary couldn't go for a walk in the garden without permission from the Taoiseach's office that to say she was held under a tight leash would be to understate the circumstances every jot and tittle every dot was dotted every t was crossed so it is the fact that under the law the the president has to submit to the wishes of uh, of the cabinet and of the Taoiseach and if the cabinet and the Taoiseach go on to come down hard on him and control him there's very little he can do about it he can have the odd burst out but realistically speaking if he's going to stay within the parameters of the law he will he'll he'll have to deal with it he'll have to live with the government he'll have to find a more subtle way of being subversive than the way that Michael D Higgins Michael has had to do anything because he hasn't been in any way controlled. There's been no desire to control him from the governments that have been in power whilst he's been president. So while there might be a concern that somebody who, who was elected, not Mike, like Michael, but someone from the right, might go on of some kind of horrible right-wing rampage, I think actually it won't happen because the government will draw him in. And they'll just nail him to the floor and say, you can't leave.
0: And I think that might be an appropriate image to end this on, giving it is after all Christmas, Michael.
1: Absolutely, it's a nice Christmasy image. A president with his feet nailed to the floor of Aristotle.
0: Well, I, I meant just the general image of a man getting nailed to something. <laughs> that happens later, Gary.
1: That's Easter. Anyway, have a happy Christmas, uh, a lovely Saint Stephen's Day, and a lovely New Year. We will be back sometime in the middle of it all.
0: All the best.